Hello and welcome to Queer as Fact, the podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. I'm Alice. I'm Jason. And I'm Eli. And today we're talking about asexuality in 1970s American feminism. Before we get started, I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional owners of the land on which we record this podcast and pay respects to their elders past and present. We recognize them as the custodians of an oral history tradition far older than this podcast. We also have some content warnings before we begin this episode. This episode will include discussions of acephobia, misogyny, and transphobia. There'll also be some conflation of asexuality and celibacy in historical sources we'll look at, and some sex-negative rhetoric in those sources, as well as a little bit of swearing in quotes. So if any of that sounds like something you don't want to listen to, feel free to skip this episode and check out our other content. Lastly, before we dive into the episode itself, I want to thank a few people. Since ace history is a field still largely in its infancy, and a lot of the work is being done online and just written up in blogs and so forth, I thought it was worth shouting out some of the people who sent us sources or who wrote up the blogs that I use, since they're not, you know, published academics that you might find as easily. So I specifically want to shout out Siggy on the Asexual Agenda WordPress, who's done a lot of the legwork hunting down people and archives and written several blog posts that were the starting points for this episode. And I'll share some links to his writing on our social media. And I also want to thank Chris Town and Intangible on Tumblr and Sarah May on Facebook, who all sent in sources that helped with this episode. This episode is largely going to focus on discussions of a 1972 text called The Asexual Manifesto and on using that text to look at some of the ways that 1970s American feminism was discussing asexuality. So I want to include a few kind of caveats and a bit of background before we get into that. While this episode will be talking about some of the different uses of the word asexual, particularly in the 60s and 70s in America, it's not going to be a history of the term. That would be many episodes probably a whole series in itself. I did try when I was researching this episode to kind of put in more background about the different ways asexuality had been talked about over the 20th century, and I just found that that was going to be a big unwieldy thing and we should probably hone in on different points rather than trying to cover everything all at once. Yeah, maybe we should come back to this anyway. Like, that's obviously a thing we want to do. We're not trying to do the one episode on lesbians in the 20th century. Yeah. Yeah, I think because I started off with the one text that was the Asexual Manifesto, I was like, I can't just talk about a text. I need to talk about the context and maybe bring in some other texts that kind of... Yeah, and then you were like, wait, I can do whatever I want. Yeah, and then I was like, first I can do whatever I want, and secondly, I can't try and cover the whole of asexuality in one episode by being like, here's three texts that tell you everything you need to know. We did an episode on a cup once. We did do an episode on a cup once. We can do whatever we want. (laughs) And you can't stop us. You can turn off the podcast, but that's all the power you have here. <laughs> got weirdly aggressive with the audience. Yeah, I'm sorry, guys. So I do want to mention before we really dive into talking about the 1970s that people had been talking about the notion of asexuality, obviously, for a long time before the 70s, and they'd been using the word asexual in particular to refer to human sexuality since at least the early 1900s. As early as 1907, for example, we see German-American activist Karl Schlegel condemned by the Presbyterian Church for arguing that quote, homosexuals, heterosexuals, bisexuals, and asexuals should be treated equally under the law when it came to issues around sexual assault, public displays of sexuality, and child abuse. Mm, Cool. 
And we continue throughout the 20th century to see asexuality just kind of crop up when people are listing human sexualities. A lot of these comments about asexuality, unfortunately, are just kind of throwaway comments in lists of sexualities. So we don't necessarily know what exactly the authors of these works understood asexuality to be. We just know that they believed there was a human sexuality alongside heterosexuality, homosexuality, bisexuality that was asexuality. There surely must be a bunch of texts lying around somewhere that someone can put together. Like, yeah. I understand people are doing this already, but... Yeah, and, like, there's definitely work to be done on, you know, what did asexual mean at that time and what mm. was happening in those discussions. And there were mm. also a bunch of other words that were being used, particularly by German sexologists, oh, yeah, cool. to mean similar things, and I didn't get around to looking those up because I'd have to, you know, figure out the German and how it was being yeah. translated into English. So, like, I came across things that said Magnus Hirschfeld used the word asexual. And then when I looked it up, I was like, well, you're reading in translation. So, what did Magnus Hirschfeld actually say? Mm. And at that point, I was like, we're not here to read Magnus Hirschfeld in German in an episode about 70s activism. <laughs> and I went away. <laughs> so, uh, sometime we'll do that, maybe. <laughs> we'll find a German speaker to help us do that. I also want to very briefly mention the work of Alfred Kinsey and how that ties in with asexuality, although, again, that isn't the topic of this episode. I was trying to give some context about how sexuality was being talked about at the time. So, in 1948, Alfred Kinsey, who was a sexologist, introduced a category marked with an X on his scale of human sexuality, which he described as someone with, quote, no sociosexual contacts or reactions. And he found that about 1.5% of the male population that he surveyed and up to 19% of the female population that he surveyed fell into this category. So Kinsey's definition, which talks about sexual contact and reactions, obviously doesn't match entirely with how we talk about asexuality in a modern setting, which focuses more on personal feelings of attraction rather than experiences. But I think it's worth mentioning as something that was being talked about in the 20th century before the time we're going to get up to. That's just a little bit of background I wanted to talk about before we got into the 1970s, just to indicate that this is far from the first time that people had been talking about asexuality or using the word asexuality, and we've just decided to hone in on this one point because that's how we do this podcast. <laughs> so let's move now to the 1960s, when the USA experienced what's generally referred to as the sexual revolution. As with many things we talk about, we don't have time to delve too in-depth into all the ins and outs of the sexual revolution, but briefly speaking, several factors changed cultural attitudes towards sex, and particularly towards women's sexuality, with an increasing acknowledgement that women could have sex for pleasure outside of marriage and on their own terms. So we had the publication of the work of Alfred Kinsey in the 40s and 50s, which surveyed a whole lot of people about their sexuality and their experiences with sex and opened up conversations about sexuality beyond heterosexuality within marriage, basically. We also had the advent of the pill, which was approved by the FDA in America in 1960 and obviously opened up a lot more opportunities for sex without consequences. And also treatments for syphilis discovered in the 1950s, which similarly lifted a lot of the potential consequences from having casual sex. So these changing attitudes to women's sexuality did come with backlash, not just from conservatives in the way that you would expect and, you know, I'm sure have heard of. Yeah. But also from feminists who began to argue that the newfound focus on women's freedom to have sex would sometimes become an obligation for women to always be open to sex and therefore a new tool of female oppression. The Asexual Manifesto comes out of some of these feminist discussions and explores some of these ideas. 
And I do want to mention that there's plenty of similar pieces of writing by feminists at the time that explore this same topic and concept. I chose to focus on this one partly because it was the one people kept sending us and being like, hey guys, do some ace history. Here's the asexual manifesto. And partly because its title with the word asexual means that it often catches the eye of people who are trying to research ace history. Mm, very Googleable. Yes. So do other similar things use different terminology? There are some that do use the word asexual as well. Like this isn't the only one that uses asexual to talk about this, but there are also some that talk about celibacy. There's one that's titled Independence from the Sexual Revolution. So it kind of just talks about like stepping back from the sexual revolution. So there's a variety of different words people use to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I guess, you know, in that case, especially it's like a direct response to the sexual revolution. So someone Googling about asexuality in 2022 is not necessarily going to see that and immediately register it as something that's interesting to them in a way that the asexual manifesto is a fairly timeless title. Yeah. If you're looking for content about asexuality and you see the asexual manifesto, you're immediately going to be like, this is what I was looking for, Hmm. which is why I thought it's worth talking about and put it in context. So, you know, when you Google it, what's going on. So, in September 1972, the Coordinating Council of New York Radical Feminists formed caucuses on a variety of sexualities with the aim of exploring issues unique to each sexuality and sharing them with the wider group. Along with lesbian, heterosexual, and bisexual caucuses, two women, Lisa Orlando and Barbara Getz, formed an asexual caucus. Before I go further with that, I just want to quickly mention the fact that these people were called the New York Radical Feminists, and obviously the term radical feminists has much more negative connotations now to us than it did then. And I have seen reactions to some of this work that basically go, these people were all TERFs, why are we talking about this? Mm-hmm. Are they TERFs? No. Oh, okay, cool. Well, that put that to bed then. <laughs> <laughs> so, obviously, there were TERFs amongst radical feminists in the 70s, but that doesn't mean that everyone who was a radical feminist in the 70s was a TERF. I don't have specific information about what Lisa Orlando and Barbara Getz specifically thought about the position of trans women in the feminist movement. Lisa Orlando, in her 1980s master's thesis, does write sympathetically about the prosecution of trans women under cross-dressing laws. Okay. So, you know, that seems pretty positive. This isn't something that I've actually researched, so, you know, take Mm. what I'm saying with a grain of salt. But I have heard that modern-day TERFs have kind of created this impression that, Mm. like, everyone used to be TERFs, as is sensible according to them. And that's not actually reflective of how feminist movements have been over the like latter part of the 20th century. Yeah, I think that's accurate. Donna Densmore, I mentioned her work, Independence from the Sexual Revolution, before. So she was another feminist at this time writing about these kind of things. She's talked about that specific idea that TERFs have kind of co-opted mm. 70s feminism to be like, yeah, everyone was a TERF back then. And she talks about the fact that that's not her experience of the 1970s. So, for example, in a 2014 panel at Boston Uni, she critiqued the myth that second wave feminists were, quote, naive and primitive about gender, not aware of its fluidity and the extent to which it is performative and not an essential quality. And she argues that, in fact, quote, we were suspicious of anything said about gender as intending or at least functioning to put us in a box. And she also talks in that same speech very positively about the work of Judith Butler, for example, who is a non-binary gender scholar. Who TERFs also like to co-opt a lot and who has absolutely no time for TERFs. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) So, yeah, there are definitely like 70s feminists who are writing the kind of work we're talking about here Mm -hmm. who are on the same page as like Judith Butler in trying to stop TERFs co-opting their work. 
Cool. So back to the asexual caucus in 1972. This caucus consisted of only two people, Lisa Orlando and Barbara Getz. And the outcome of that caucus was the asexual manifesto. So I just want to mention before we get into talking about the manifesto that while Barbara Getz worked on the first draft in that caucus, she chose not to have her name associated with the final version because she was concerned about how it might affect her therapy practice at the time. And so Lisa Orlando did make some changes after Barbara stepped away from the document. And Lisa notes in the final version that some of the views might be hers only rather than hers and Barbara's. So for that reason, I'm going to refer to Lisa mostly as the author of this work and quotes as being from her. I also want to mention that Lisa states near the start of the document that, quote, we chose the term asexual to describe ourselves because both celibate and antisexual have connotations we wish to avoid. The first implies that one has sacrificed sexuality for some higher good. The second, that sexuality is degrading or somehow inherently bad. But in spite of making this statement, I do think that some of the things that she says throughout the manifesto are quite sex negative and quite condemnatory of sex and sexuality. So I just wanted to flag that up front. So you're prepared for that to happen. So the manifesto opens with the statement that, quote, our experiences with sexuality have not been congruent with our feminist values. And Lisa goes on to critique the pervasiveness of sexuality in her own and others' lives, saying that it leads to relationships in which people are largely categorized and objectified according to their potential as sexual partners. She sees sex with men as, quote, one means by which men oppress us. This idea that sex is an oppressive patriarchal tool wielded by men was a pretty common one in feminist circles at the time. Lesbian historian Lillian Faderman, for example, describes two separate movements of women who loved women in the 1960s. She talks about those who saw their sexuality as an essential kind of inborn part of themselves and who aligned themselves with the gay rights movement. And then she also talks about women who saw their sexuality as a choice made in response to society and particularly men's attitudes towards women and who aligned themselves with the feminist movement. And some of these lesbian feminists believed that any woman could make the choice to be a lesbian, and indeed that they should, since sleeping with men amounted to sleeping with the enemy in the feminist struggle. Well, you had me for a minute there, but... (laughs) (laughs) You can see how people got to these ideas, Mm. I think. Yeah, but I mean, I think that's the way with a lot of, like, activist discourses that you can kind of see how you get to a certain point. Yeah. But... That doesn't mean that that's a good point to reach. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like it's the sort of thing where people, like, say one thing that is reasonable, and they're like, well, if that, then this. And then they do that, like, a hundred more times, and all of a sudden it's like, where are we? Yeah. And, like, there were definitely conversations even at the time from bisexual women or, like, straight feminists who were saying, look, I'm attracted to men, and that's a fact, and I'm going to sleep with men, and there are good men in my Mm. life. That doesn't make me not a feminist. And, you know, they were having those arguments. Yeah. I mean, it isn't really a hot button issue anymore. (laughs) No. (laughs) (laughs) Although I think this does sort of still come up a little bit for, like, bisexual women. Yeah. Like, I've definitely heard bisexual women, or I guess queer women who aren't sure how to label themselves, being like, I call myself a lesbian, but I am attracted to men, but everyone's told me in my queer circles that that's disgusting and wrong. So, like, Mm. have I just repressed that? Was I ever attracted to men? Well, and it's certainly very common for, like, queer people to be, like, if you have the option to not sleep with men, then why would you sleep with men? Because men are mm. the worst or, you know. Yeah. We've yeah. all been on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I guess that has similarities. Yeah. I think in a lot of ways that's the same conversation with maybe just a less of a political slant. 
Yeah, less like possibility of women's only hippie communes, but same vibes. Yeah. Yeah, like it's kind of, you know, in this first instance, it's got like a political philosophy behind it. Yeah. But then like, you know, slowly it just becomes like, well, men are stinking, we don't like them. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, like, that's okay. So the Asexual Manifesto takes this argument about not sleeping with men a step further and mm. argues that sex with women reflects many of the same exploitative behavioral patterns and issues that sex with men does, quote, because of the patriarchal culture which has resulted from institutionalized sexism and that therefore sex with women should also be off the table in the feminist struggle. Mm. I was interested to see if this was going to be more akin to hey, I'm a lesbian, or more akin to political lesbianism. And I see yeah. that we are in the political lesbianism arena. Yeah. But mm. for asexuals right now, <laughs> yeah. um, which is interesting. So Lisa Orlando, what do we know about her? Well, first off, Lisa Orlando doesn't see asexuality as a sexual orientation and identity in mm-hmm. the same way we might in the modern day. So she describes herself as asexual, yeah. but she doesn't see that as a sexual orientation as such. Okay. She is attracted to men and women. But just thinks, like, sex is sort of a bad idea. Yeah, so... To be very attractive, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> she was okay. interviewed Siggy, who I mentioned as being on the Asexual Agenda yeah. WordPress in 2019, and in that interview she said that she created the Asexual Caucus, quote, for ex-lesbians who were turned off because they discovered that women were as fucked up as men. So that's kind of the position she sees herself being in. She's been attracted to women and men, she's tried relationships with both of them, and she's like, this is a mess, mm, and okay. I want to step back from that, basically. Mm. So we mentioned how the were at the time, like in Lillian Federman's book, mm. talking about like what I'll just briefly say are like lesbians and political lesbians. Yeah. Do you feel like there's those sort of two movements existing for asexual people as well at the time, or is there really only, as far as you're aware of currently, the latter with this kind of political asexuality, or do you feel like they're sort of all mixed in together and it's a different situation than the lesbians? I would say they're all mixed in together, and okay. probably that's because asexuality is a much smaller movement than mm. lesbianism. Yeah. But yeah, I think that, and as we'll see throughout this episode, which is kind of what we're getting to, these arguments about political asexuality were kind of a way for asexual people who did not come mm. to their asexuality from a political standpoint, mm. but were just like, hey, I'm not interested in sex, mm. to kind of find a place to yeah. express their sexuality and yeah. talk about their sexuality. Yeah, like I, I yeah. do want to know, and I think it's important to say that I'm not trying to differentiate between like real asexuals and pretend asexuals or something like that. Like I feel like what she's saying here could be a perfectly reasonable expression of mm. asexuality as we understand it today. But yeah. just sort of getting a feel for what's going on. Yeah. I, there's a lot I could say to that, and I might just come to it as I yeah, come to it, because cool. I feel like you've hit on the whole point of this episode. Alrighty. <laughs> <laughs> so, keep those thoughts in mind and bring them up as they come up. I will. <laughs> so, going back to the manifesto, Lisa goes on to argue that most of the things that we think we need from sex, such as affection, warmth, and skin contact – I don't know if she means emotional warmth or just physical warmth. She doesn't really clarify. Um, I mean, if she means physical warmth, she clearly means the emotional benefits deriving from it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, she's definitely talking no about- No one's having sex. Because they're cold. Yeah, because it's winter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Lisa argues that these things we think we need from sex can actually be satisfied through friendships, and that once these have been satisfied through friendships, she's found that, quote, our need for and interest in sex diminished. 
See, that does sound like someone who is asexual finding a political expression for that. So I see what you mean by this is all mixed up. Yeah, and I can't speak to, you know, Lisa's exact personal feelings, but there are definitely other writings that refer to women who have had this experience of being like, I realized that, you know, sex was kind of something forced on me by the patriarchy. I stopped having it and I was like, oh. Nice. Groovy. Groovy. I never wanted that anyway. (laughs) Yeah. Whereas there would definitely also have been women who have been like, I stopped having sex for political reasons. I still wanted to have sex, but I decided not to do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Lisa also argues that time and energy invested in sexual relationships is time and energy taken away from the feminist struggle, which is also a point that feminists were making at this time about sexual relationships with men specifically. Were they also making that point about a lot of other things? Crosswords? Uh, probably. Okay. I just yeah. think that's a silly argument. Yeah, that's that's an argument for literally not doing anything aside from activism at any time. Which is a recipe for burnout. Yeah, like, there's always a conversation in activism about how much you prioritise your activism over other parts of your yeah. life, but I wouldn't hone in on sex and say that that's the problem. Like, we're not going to have stop having potluck dinners, are we? <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, the current obsession in the world is Wordle. And yes. I've seen, like, several, like, hot takes on Wordle where people are like, oh, these people are all wasting their time on Wordle. And it's like, it's like five minutes a day, guys. You're taking time yeah. away from the struggle, guys. And, you know, most sex probably lasts longer than five minutes, but it's the same kind of principle, <laughs> right? You're not having sex, like, 12 hours a day. Yeah, yeah. You've got to do a variety of stuff probably. in your day. Mm. I feel like that complaint about Wordle is just a self-roast about how not good at Wordle you are. <laughs> <laughs> I've done Wordle twice. I am now an expert on Wordle. I'm a genius. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so based on these points about sex as a tool of oppression and as something that takes time and energy away from the feminist struggle, Lisa turns to what she calls the philosophy of asexuality, which she describes as, quote, an attempt to relate to others in their totality as much as possible and not view them as objects existing for the gratification of our needs. But that's not what sex does if you're not asexual i guess which is the whole point of this episode i don't know yeah 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 and i think that's why i said kind of the start of talking about the manifesto that she does have some very like sex negative comments yeah yeah Yeah, like she views sex in a very narrow way Mm. as really as being about objectifying someone to gratify their own needs and i guess she has the argument that sex isn't about intimacy and personal connections because you can get that through friendships so Mm. what is sex about then if not that it's just about gratifying your needs yeah it is kind of difficult with these sorts of things because i think that like that worldview is valid you know for some people Mm. and therefore like expressing that is perfectly reasonable and i'm sure that there are people who read this and were like this is life changing and i will be much happier now because i'm gonna stop forcing myself into sexual relationships yeah but also like obviously you can't just generalize that out and like it becomes if you do quite sex negative which is going Mm. to negatively influence people who read it and it's like it's hard to kind of see where the line is in how you write these things about like how clearly you have to signpost this is my personal mm, yeah. experience and may not apply yeah. to everyone because i yeah. do feel like having to constantly do that does at some point just make your text unwieldy and becomes yeah. like obvious and whatnot so i don't i think in particular when you're trying to pin down something that like clearly whilst there has been obviously writing about asexuality before mm. this like where there's such a dearth of resources available and writing available that you often end up kind of pinning your opinions to the phrases that you say in a way that's like somewhere you know on the other side of sex is overwhelming and pervasive throughout society yeah and where you end up pinning that it like i feel like it's a lot harder to pin that in a way that is like 
reasonable when you're, you know, not the first person writing, but when you're an early person writing on a subject yeah. like that. Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. Like you're throwing ideas out here that you haven't necessarily been able to hone over years and years of discussion and so on. Mm. You're just kind of saying, hey, this is my experience. What do you reckon? Yeah, I don't remember in the manifesto how much Lisa kind of writes about this as being her own experiences with sex and sexuality and how much she writes about it as being something that other women should do. She certainly explicitly states that she's trying to not have it be a general, like, this is what all women should be mm. doing. I do feel at points that her sort of opinion in the superiority of this specific expression of asexuality comes through a couple of times. Yeah, yeah. I definitely found that even if she wasn't saying other women should all stop having sex, she was really presenting it as like, you know... Sex is taking you away from the feminist struggle. Sex is causing you to objectify other people. Sex is a way in which men can oppress you. I do feel like it kind of like reads a bit more reasonably than just sort of listing those things off mm. sounds when you say it like that. Because I, I do think for like most of it she succeeds in making it clear that it's about – like she talks about we and that's like that we is asexual women, right? Like mm. it's not just like women or people. Like she's talking about yeah. women of her experience – you know, feel this and should do this and stuff like that. And so cool. But then she's also like sort of critiquing society more widely and kind of saying like, you know, society is very over-focused on sex. And like, if you go out to socialize, you go to bars and stuff like that. And that's because of sex. And it's like, I mean, even as someone who isn't asexual, like that's still a valid critique of society Yeah, that I have suffered negatively from, even if I'm not going to take her solution to it Mm. and stop having sex with people. So like, I feel like it's overall pretty good, but there are like a few moments of like, well, hang on that, Lisa, maybe let's do a little edit of that little bit. Yeah. I think it also depends where you're coming from. Like I've definitely read lesbians sort of just like push this piece aside and say that was incredibly lesbophobic Mm. the way that she says that like lesbianism is just as bad as the the patriarchy oppressing women it's like women just treating other women in that same way that men treat women and that kind of thing i feel like this is a difficulty in 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 general where people make these quite broad critiques but then Mm. like if you're a marginalized person and you've had like a very different experience of that particular thing that's being spoken about those comments hit very differently yeah and it's very difficult to balance things like that I think also, like, it depends on when she says, you know, in that kind of general section of the manifesto, she's saying stuff like, don't do sex because you could be doing activism and stuff like Mm. that. You can kind of read that as a general comment of, like, everyone who has sex should actually be doing activism. But you can also kind of read it as her being, like, for someone who sex is not beneficial and is actually kind of harmful, it was just taking up space in her life that she could be using for things that she actually feels are beneficial, which is, like, a much more positive statement. Yeah, yeah. And I think you can also probably, although she presents it as a really, like, you are having sex, you could be doing activism, stop having sex right now kind of stance. (laughs) Maybe not that extreme, but, you know, I think she does present it on that kind of small scale. It, like, also more generally can just be like, hey, all this effort we focus in sex Mm. as a society, Mm. we could focus in making our society better and more equal. Like, is she talking about you individually parked with your boyfriend or is she talking about every single ad that's that's ever shown you a sexy woman to try and sell you a shirt or something yeah yeah i I think like because there's a bit towards the end where she has like seven points about like specific things 
in society about sex. Yeah. And it was like, yeah, like, I can't really disagree with any of this. Like, mm. this is all true. But then, you know, like, she does kind of then go a step further to sort of be like, well, this is the next step in the feminist movement and, like, mm. this is where we should be headed. Yeah. And I think there is a degree mm. of, like, moral judgment there. Yeah. And I guess, yeah. like, that's the conflation of the personal with the political, right? That, like, mm. you know, she realized all of these things, presumably, I'm assuming a lot about this woman's life, I don't really know. <laughs> and, you know, then made these steps to make her life feel more, like, productive and good. Yeah. And then is transferring all of that onto society in general. Yeah. And that's yeah. a step where, like, it's you have to pivot a little which is kind of difficult to do in an eight-page document, but also you should probably do in your eight-page document. Yeah, and I think, like, those discussions were definitely being had at the time and we may not have them written down, like, Mm. around this. So, for Mm. example, there was a conference, there was some kind of gathering of feminists, I can't remember exactly what it was called, in the months before this document was written where the title was, like, Is the Personal Political? Yeah. And I know that, like, Barbara Getz was there and spoke about asexuality in one of the sessions. And I assume that kind of a lot of these points we're discussing, they would have been discussing as well. Mm. Yeah. 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 Okay. That's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, like, the Is the Personal Political is, like, a cliche of <laughs> activism as well. Yeah. It's not surprising. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Obviously not surprising, but it's just interesting that it, like, yeah, specifically just before this was published, you have, uh, like, that contextualizes yeah. this. In an interesting way. So, as I kind of hinted at by mentioning that Barbara Getz, for example, also spoke about asexuality in other feminist gatherings, Lisa wasn't alone in the attitude she presents in the manifesto and there were other women having these conversations. So, women and gender studies scholar Brianne Fass, writing a history of radical feminism in 2008, argues that, quote, Political celibacy is integral to a radical feminist politics and has a long history in radical feminist visions of sexual possibilities, and Fass argues that the presence of this political celibacy or political asexuality has been erased due to the tendency of our society to focus on sex, and so this just hasn't been seen as a key or interesting part of the history. If we're so obsessed with sex as a society, wouldn't we comment on that, like, super hard? Yeah, I mean, I think you can also make the argument that way as well. I think, like, Brianne Fass is definitely right that there were quite a lot of discussions about political asexuality or political celibacy at this time. Mm. Whether the reason that we don't talk about them much is because we're too obsessed with sex and society, hard to say. Mm-hmm. So there were feminist groups which existed in the 60s and 70s which actively supported or encouraged celibacy in their members and some we know did try to recruit Lisa after she wrote this manifesto. One well-known group was Cell 16, founded in 1968, whose founding member Donna Densmore, who I've mentioned, wrote several articles on the topic titled things like On Celibacy, Asexuality, and Independence from the Sexual Revolution, which all make many of the same points as Lisa's mm-hmm. manifesto. Mm-hmm. Donna is interesting to us because unlike Lisa, she does begin to discuss how personal experiences of sexual attraction might relate to these ideas. Well, that is interesting. So, in her 1971 article, Independence from the Sexual Revolution, she writes, If you are told over and over that you are a being who has profound sexual needs, the odds are very good that you will discover that you do, particularly when other outlets are forbidden or discouraged, particularly when it is emphasized that those who do not feel these needs are frigid, neurotic, sexually maladjusted, dried up, barren, to be pitied. Yeah, so, I mean, that's pretty basic, like, theory about queer identities in general, right? Yeah. We talk about compulsory heterosexuality, 
a fair bit as queers and on this podcast. And I guess you would call this idea like compulsory allosexuality or sometimes people say compulsory amatonormativity. So yeah, it's definitely the case that while the conversation about asexuality in the 70s wasn't exclusively focused on asexuality as an individual experience of not feeling sexual attraction and the conversation was often approached from a political perspective, it definitely made space for people who were having the experience of not feeling sexual attraction, and who were what we might describe as asexual in the modern sense. But because of these different approaches to asexuality, seeing it as first and foremost something you approach politically or something you approach personally, there is some debate among asexual people who discover this manifesto today about where or whether the asexual manifesto sits within modern asexual history. Mm -hmm. Some people have argued that it doesn't have a place in asexual history because it's talking about celibacy and it just happens to use the same term and applied that point more generally to this kind of political celibacy movement in the 70s. And these people argue that conflating asexuality as a personal sexual identity with political celibacy contributes to confusion about what asexuality is and a misunderstanding of asexuality. Others have argued that although definitions may fluctuate, many of the same issues are still experienced by asexual people today as were being discussed in conversations in the 1970s, things like the pervasiveness of sexuality in society and the expectation that a lot of your time and energy will be focused on looking for a sexual partner. And therefore, there's an argument that it's worth recognizing that continuity and therefore acknowledging the place of this movement in asexual history. Yeah, and I think there's an obvious connection. Like, you know, I certainly read this and was like, oh, yeah, this resonates and is similar to a lot of the things that asexual people that I've met have told me. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of the specifics too, like the conflation of sort of romantic intimacy and mm. sex – like, I think if you're critiquing that, you you are going beyond just talking about, like, political celibacy and talking about, you know, sort of how to create a life in a society where sex is deemed as, like, very important and how to carve out a space in that life that doesn't have sex in it but still has, you know, fulfillment and meaning. Yeah, yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. And I think we'll have a look at a personal response to the manifesto in a sec, and I think you'll see exactly that thing. Like, it does resonate with people who are not experiencing sexual attraction and mm. trying to find a space for themselves in society. Mm. I also wanted to mention that I came across the point made in comments on one of Siggy's WordPress posts from an asexual person today who does see their asexuality as political. This isn't the only person with this stance. This is just the one that had, you know, a snappy quote about it. So the commenter called Coyote said, of course it's political. It's political because it's affecting our lives under sex normativity and you've got brigades of people attacking us for it. So I think that kind of comes back to the conversation of like how much is your personal identity a political identity that we talked about a bit before. But although we – and we've done a bit in this episode and I think people do have a tendency to say, well, the modern asexual identity is a personal identity and that one was a political identity – it's not that clear-cut, and a lot mm. of queer people today, ace people and other people, mm. obviously see their identities as inherently political. Mm. So I want to move on now to looking at some reactions to the Asexual Manifesto at the time. The manifesto was made available from the New York Radical Feminists for 25 cents a copy and seems to have been reasonably popular. An excerpt was published in the 1974 book, Sexual Honesty. At a caller read the manifesto aloud on Margot Adler's early morning radio show, Hour of the Wolf. And Margot remembers that, quote, calls from the solitary and celibate followed for days. 
I'm sure that's not the only kind of example of that conversation being had, but that's one we have a record of. So as Margot's comment hints at, while the manifesto was written as a political document, it did resonate with many readers on a personal level. So I want to just look at one example of that. In a 1976 article in the Detroit magazine, The Gay Liberator, a man named Greg Turner describes his own journey with discovering his sexuality. Like Lisa, Greg also sees sex as a potential tool of female oppression, and he talks about how uncomfortable he felt in high school with social pressures to objectify women. He also makes the same point about male homosexuality that Lisa made about lesbianism, that he found the same issues of sexual objectification present in gay communities. But in Greg's discussion of his sexuality, we also see his personal lack of sexual attraction. He described how he was attracted to relationships with men, but enjoyed physical contact with his partner, quote, not for the sex, but for the intimacy, and how he participated in sex largely because it was what was expected of him. He describes himself at one point in the article as gay but not homosexual, what we might call homoromantic asexual. And Greg goes on to explain that he never really felt he understood his sexuality and he was on quite a long and involved journey to understand himself. And he came to that understanding when a friend gave him a copy of the Asexual Manifesto and, quote, it helped me form a new identity. So Greg is just one example, but I assume that this reaction happened a lot to people who read the Asexual Manifesto and had been trying to find a way to understand their sexual identity, which they just didn't have prior to that. Mm. It is good to get at least one male perspective in this episode as well. Because, I mean, obviously, like, maybe Greg's a feminist, I don't know Greg's life. But, you know, his account is quite divorced from the political situation, so I think it does highlight Mm. the, like, personal worth to the manifesto and the further ways in which the political and the personal are all tangled up here. So Yeah, yeah. Mm, I did think it was interesting to have a male perspective because obviously like Lisa and Cell 16, all those people are writing it that purely for women. They don't really consider what the experience of men in a Mm. sexualized society is. And as Greg talks about, if you're an asexual man, a lot of it's kind of a pretty similar experience. Mm. And I think probably that perspective, you know, shows how much of the manifesto is personal and is Mm. very like rooted in experiences that are related to your asexual identity because you know obviously there is a large chunk of it that is very like here are our goals as feminists and you know and presumably greg wasn't resonating with those parts i think greg does consider himself a feminist i can't remember exactly how he talks about it but he is very sympathetic to feminist struggles but obviously he's not like trying to you know escape from the influence of men in his life for instance yes yeah like he is attracted to men and he does want to have relationships with men yeah. He's not coming from that stance of, like, men are evil and I just can't interact with them because they're oppressing me. Yeah. Yeah. So, I want to end this episode by looking at a different piece of writing on asexuality from the late 70s, which presents a different viewpoint. An article titled Asexual and Autoerotic Women, Two Invisible Groups, written in 1977 by Myra T. Johnson for a book titled The Sexually Oppressed, which also includes chapters on other queer identities, various racial identities, disability, and so forth, and the intersections of these identities and sexuality. I'm sure it'll be fine, but hearing the word autoerotic just makes alarm bells go off in my head. <laughs> yeah, this is going to be some <laughs> transmisogynistic. I mean, I guess, I, like, I totally understand that, that sort of alarm bells, but, you know, it does make me think of some of the text in the manifesto where it talks about, you know, it talks about masturbation and it talks yeah. about, like, a healthy sexual relationship with oneself being, you know, not a necessary part of 
asexuality, but a totally acceptable part of asexuality. Mm. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, actually, because I also thought about that part when I was reading it, and I'd forgotten those thoughts, you know, head empty, no think, as soon as I sit down in the podcast. (laughs) Uh, Because that also reminded me really strongly of things that I've heard asexual friends talk about today Mm. in the modern day this idea that like asexuality isn't the absence of a sexuality Mm. like asexual people that i know have have always like pushed really strongly against that understanding that asexual people just don't have a sexuality and that description that lisa orlando gave of like no it's like a sexuality that you kind of cultivate with yourself resonated with those discussions that i thought was like quite cool and quite well pushed and i think it's also like just a very good thing to discuss just for cultivating a healthy relationship to sexuality at all, whether you're asexual or not. Because mm. I think that even in like relatively sex positive spaces that like we tend to run in, there's still sometimes this kind of tone that like masturbation is quite sad. Mm. You know, mm. not like always. And like we've all been at a party and had someone kind of loudly talking about their new vibrator and stuff like that, and that's you know wonderful. But um, <laughs> but I, I feel like it is sort of like people still kind of treat it that your sexuality is, is your sexuality with other people, and yeah, like you should cultivate a healthy sexuality by communicating with partners about what you want from sex and whatnot. But like. If you're masturbating, that's just a fallback because you you didn't manage to hook up or whatever, as opposed to that being something that you could still be like, no, like, I really want to, you know, explore that and kind of cultivate that part of my sexuality just like by myself. Mm. Yeah. That needs to be a part of a healthy conversation about sexuality. So, like, cool, good. Yeah, I know I've definitely seen discussions, like, even in queer spaces where people say things like, why do you need to masturbate if you have a partner? Or would you be upset if you found out your partner was masturbating? That's when insane. You yeah, and it's just like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Aren't you just cheating on your partner with yourself? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so to get back to Myra Johnson's article, it was interesting to me, because of the definition of asexuality, she provides that is closer to what we talk about today so she describes an asexual person or an asexual woman specifically as she talks about as quote the individual who regardless of physical or emotional condition actual sexual history and marital status or ideological orientation seems to prefer not to engage in sexual activity and then she goes on to specifically delineate between asexual women who have no interest in sexual activity and autoerotic women who have interest in sexual activity only with themselves so Myers' discussion on asexuality begins to actively break away from viewing asexuality as a political choice. Although she notes that conversations about the necessity or lack of necessity specifically of sex in the women's movement may have helped some asexual women to be more open about their own experiences. And I think that's a lot of what we've been saying about Mm -hmm. how even though it was a political document, the asexual manifesto would have resonated with people who were just personally experiencing asexuality. So Myra argues that seeing asexuality as a purely political choice is just one step in a long journey of explaining away asexual women's sexual preference, quote, in the rhetoric of whatever sexual ideology seems to be currently in vogue. And she goes through a series of kind of sexual attitudes that societies have had over the years and how asexual people may have been seen in those times. So she talks about how they may have been seen as ascetic and performing some kind of religious piety in early Christian societies to being seen as neurotic and pathologized in the early 20th century when that was society's approach to sexuality and in the times she was writing to being seen as first unliberated in the sexual revolution mm-hmm. and then as making a politically conscious feminist choice later on in the 70s that's really cool this is historiography 
Yeah. Someone is founding a field. Yeah. She's doing <laughs> Probably not founding it. You know, <laughs> this is this is like early like ace historiography. That's yeah. great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really liked Mari's article. Like I got to her article relatively late in researching this and I was like, oh yeah. Like even though she was writing in nineteen seventy seven, like these are all the points that we would make. <laughs> like <laughs> politicizing asexuality is one avenue through which asexual people could express themselves that reflects the politics of the time. That really just does feel like a really like exciting and productive starting point to start talking about historical asexuality from, and I'm really into that element. <laughs> yeah, I think like the way that she does go through and talk about, you know, different points in time and how asexual people may have been understood. Like, if you wanted to research ace history, those are the points you would go in. Mm. Like, okay, so were these ascetic celibate communities in early Christianity? Mm. Can we find examples of asexual people there? Mm. And mm. so on. So yeah, that then helps you if you're trying to search for signs of asexuality in a particular historical era to think about, okay, well, like, how was, you know, the concept of a lack of sexuality or asexuality or or celibacy or however it was defined at the time, how was that perceived at that time? Mm. And then, you know, if you can then find writing from someone who's talking about it in a different way, it's like, okay, well, they weren't talking about it in the same way, so maybe it's worth investigating that deeper. So, yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, and I think, like, the point that I think you made at the start, Jason, that, like, if you were looking up – maybe you made this point, maybe I made this point (laughs) – if you were looking up asexuality in the 70s, you mightn't find all of this movement, but you would find the asexual manifesto because it uses the word asexual. Once you've kind of taken this approach Myra has taken, you'd think, oh, I'm actually looking up political celibacy. I'm actually looking up reactions to the sexual revolution. Mm. Then you'd find a whole lot more content. Yeah, Yeah, that unlocking of – content and like understanding the signposts that you can then yeah. delve into like that's such a huge part yeah. of like all queer history really yeah all um, of a sudden you've got your contents page <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's have to do the, everything else <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah like i think about a lot a lot of like you know the sort of queer writers mm. of the like 18th and 19th century or whatever and like how like as a kid growing up i did not know oscar wilde was queer yeah you know and part of the reason for that is i wasn't recognizing all the signposts mm. that were being like there's some gay here yeah there are all those like euphemisms that you see like i think people very commonly talk about the, like the victorian era ones like bohemian confirmed bachelor like mm. flamboyant all those kind of things and we talk about those for homosexuality. We probably talk about them less for asexuality. I also think it's like really helpful to have a asexual person laying out this connection to like early Christian aestheticism and things like that, mm. because it's very easy. And this doesn't just go for asexual history, but like any type of queer history to kind of point to things and have people be like, oh, but that's like not really relevant to, you know, we yeah. can't draw a line between that and modern day trans identity or whatever. And having in a field that is as sort of new as ace history, like ace people from 50 years ago, kind of making that connection already is a very useful piece of scholarship to have yeah. to draw on there mm-hmm. already like it's not only that we are able to make this connection so these connections themselves have a history and been made for quite a while so that's good yeah. exciting yeah. yeah someone wrote a book and then come on the podcast one <laughs> <laughs> so Maya concludes her article by providing some advice and optimism for asexual women, which I thought was, you know, a nice way for us to conclude this episode. Mm-hmm. So she points to new trends in therapy at the time, which try to support individual lifestyles or orientations or so on, rather than forcing people into accepted norms. And she suggests that asexual women interview prospective therapists, quote, to see if she will be able to work with them without having the truth of her life altered to fit another truth. And finally, Myra advocates for 
asexual women to be proud of their identities, ending with a quote from Saul Brown's 1975 Catalogue of Sexual Consciousness, quote, I stood as though I were proud before I was proud, and then I became proud. I really like that. That's good. That's the first reference I'd come across to what is just so explicitly ace pride. That's super nice. Yeah. I am really, really excited that we did this episode because we have talked about ace history a bit, but it's more Mm. just kind of been people like further back in history who we're talking about for another reason as well, who we think were potentially ace. And that's good. But I really do want us to keep digging into like even in just this episode we've come into so many different things that we can talk about regarding more modern ace history like looking at just that brief mention of how like therapists Mm. had kind of changed a bit in their general way they worked with patients like looking at the ways in which asexuality has been medicalized is something that we could talk about as well and like looking further back in the 20th century into the victorian era there's just so much to get into and that is exciting and really good and seriously if you have like done a thesis on something on ace history like get in touch yeah because like i was working from i mean obviously there are like chapters in books and there are you know those kind of things coming out but i was working from blog posts Mm. and like the direct 1970s Mm. sources a lot of the time yeah like and so i guess maybe like another good way to sort of wrap things up is to again where you started just express our appreciation and gratitude for the ace people are out there doing this legwork in their Mm. spare time just on a blog or whatever because it's obviously such important work at this state in the field where ace history is up to so that's fantastic and amazing yeah with that we've been queer as fact i'm alice I'm Jason. And I'm Eli. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can find the rest of our episodes on Spotify, Podbean, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you found this episode. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr as Queer as Fact. If you'd like to support us financially, we have a Redbubble store where you can purchase stuff with our logo on it. And we also have a Patreon where you can enjoy perks such as voting on episode topics and access to our monthly Queer as Fact newsletter. All of this information can be found on our website, queerasfact.com, alongside source posts if you'd like to read more about our episode topics. We'll be back on the 15th of February when Eli will be talking about the trial of early 20th century Australian trans man Harry Crawford. Thanks for listening and we'll see you then. <laughs>